Well, good morning, everyone. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 26 through 31 of Hebrews, chapter 10, this morning. Now, as we come to our passage for this morning, we need to ask, how is it that we are to understand the warning passages in the book of Hebrews? There are four main warning passages. We've already hit three of them as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, and this morning's in chapter 10 may be the most pointed of them all. In summary, it says to members of the church, do not reject Christ as your Savior, because all who do reject Him will fall into the fiery judgment of God. This is a warning against apostasy. This is a warning to those who sit in the pews of the church week in and week out. A warning to children and to youth who have been baptized, who have been confirmed. A warning to young adults who are starting careers or families. It's a warning to singles. It's a warning to moms and dads of middle school and high school students. So it's a warning to empty nesters, to retirees, and to those who are entering the final stage of life. Do not turn from Jesus Christ. Do not reject the salvation that you have claimed because there is no salvation outside of Christ. Such a warning can make us uncomfortable. And in some ways, it challenges our belief in eternal security. For we believe that all who are truly united to Christ by grace through faith can never lose their salvation and that the Lord will cause them to persevere in their faith to the end. We read in the book of Philippians chapter 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, here is a warning. Do not fall away. So how are we to understand these two seemingly contradictory ideas? On the one hand, Scripture promises that all who are in Christ will persevere to the end and will be saved. And on the other hand, Scripture warns the members of the church, do not fall away because all who reject Christ will surely face the judgment of God. One of the most well-known passages of Scripture gives us a good picture of how we are to understand such passages. In Psalm 23, we have an extended metaphor in which the Lord is described as a shepherd. A shepherd that leads and protects and blesses the sheep. And in verse 4, we read, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will Fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this is how I believe we are to read our passage for this morning. We are to see these words in the book of Hebrews as a rod and a staff and take comfort in them. In this verse, the shepherd is traveling through a dark and dangerous passage. Here it is easy to fall victim to predators. Wolves can slip into the fold and devour the sheep. 
And on the other hand, the sheep can become easily spooked and flee away from the flock, leaving them defenseless in a dangerous area. And so the shepherd carried with him a rod and a staff. The rod was a short club that was used to strike enemies. It was like a modern-day billy club that policemen carry. And the sheep would take comfort knowing that her shepherd would protect them in this dangerous journey from enemies with this rod. However, the shepherd also carried a staff. The staff was a longer stick used to guide and to direct the sheep. And when the sheep were frightened into fleeing, it would be used to give them a little pop back into line. A little tap to stay within the fold. And there was comfort in knowing that even when the sheep would rashly flee away from the flock, the shepherd had something that he could use to force the sheep back to safety. And this is how we must understand our passage for this morning. It is a rod to the wolves and a staff to the sheep. To the wolves, it promises fiery retribution, and to the sheep, it is the God-given tap of the staff by which he keeps all of his own safe within the fold. So hear now the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come to you now on this day, and we confess, Lord, that the world is filled with many fearful things, things that would cause us to grow with anxiety and worry and doubt. We pray, Lord, that this warning given to us in Scripture would be taken as a great comfort that You are a strong and mighty God. You are our Good Shepherd who will lead and will guide and protect us. We pray this all in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, as we come to our passage for this morning, one of the more helpful distinctions that we can make is to understand the distinction about the nature of the church between the visible church 
and the invisible church. Now, the invisible church refers to all of those who have been truly united to Christ. The invisible church consists of the elect, and not one of them will be lost. And so when we talk about eternal security, what we are saying is that those who are a part of the invisible church, those who are truly in Christ, not one of them will be lost. It is the invisible church because no human eye has access to infallible knowledge of someone else's salvation. Nevertheless, God sees the invisible church. He knows His own. On the other hand, there is the visible church. And the visible church consists of all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ along with their children. It is the gathering of the people of God. The visible church is that church that we can see all around us, even here. We are the visible church as we gather together in this place. Now, the visible church and the invisible church has a large overlap Many who are in the visible church are truly in the invisible church, but not everyone. That is to say that there are those who gather together under the name of Christ, who outwardly profess Christ, who have received baptism, who receive communion, and yet they have not truly placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not been born again, and for whatever reason... They choose to come to church. Maybe it's because it's their family tradition. Maybe to have a little community. Maybe because they have a guilty conscience and it makes them feel better to go to church. Maybe because they enjoy doing good deeds in the community and this is a vehicle through which they can do those good deeds. There are a million reasons why somebody who is not truly saved would gather together with the visible church. Nevertheless, even if they are not truly saved, they are truly members of the visible church. And the book of Hebrews is directed at that audience. It is directed at that mixed group, the visible church gathering together in the name of Jesus Christ, those who profess Jesus Christ. But we must understand that it is a mixed group, that there are those who are truly saved and those who are not. In our passage, we see reflected Many of the benefits that are given to those who are in the visible church. First, we see that they're given a knowledge of the truth. In verse 26, we see that. Those who are in the church are taught the gospel. They're instructed in the way of everlasting life. And this is a great benefit. When you gather as the church, you hear the word of God preached. You hear it taught in Sunday school. And you're given a great blessing, for the words of life are offered to all who come to church. They guide and direct you in what to believe and how you are to live. When we receive a child through baptism, we promise that we have now brought them into the visible church and we will teach them the truths of God's Word. For as members of the visible church, they have a right to a knowledge of the truth. 
Psalm 19 speaks of the blessing of God's Word. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And being a member of the visible church, you receive this wonderful gift. Next, we see that a form of sanctification is given. Now, we can use sanctification in a technical term to speak of the work of Christ and those who have truly been united to Him, but here in verse 29, it's speaking rather of an outward sanctification of life. Those who are in the visible church are set aside as holy. The whole congregation are called saints. And as you receive the blessing of the Word of God, whether you are a true Christian or not, there is a growth towards that which is good and holy. There is great blessing in avoiding the destructiveness of sin. And all who are in the visible church are given the blessing of learning the ways of holiness, of dwelling amongst the people who are pursuing Christ's likeness. And even those who are merely outward followers of Christ and not true believers benefit from this outward sanctification of their life. Third, we see that the visible church is given a taste of the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in verse 29. Within the visible church, the Spirit is moving and active. The Holy Spirit is changing hearts. He's guiding and directing lives. He's empowering worship. He's giving knowledge. He is exalting Christ. And even those who have not been born of the Spirit, but only exist within the community where the Spirit is active, experience great blessing. That is to say, they are with those who, through the gifts of the Spirit, are growing in Christ's likeness. And I think that we would all agree we would rather be with a group of people, we would rather live in a family that was filled with the fruit of the Spirit than not. Wouldn't you rather be with people who were experienced and expressing in their lives love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Sometimes we forget the blessing of being in a community of faith. Of course, there's brokenness and sin in every church. Of course, there are instances of abuse and harshness. But the visible body of Christ on earth is a blessing. And it is a great privilege to be a part of this body. This place where the way of eternal life is made known. The path of holiness is pursued. The work of the Spirit is experienced. If you are a child who has been born into this community of faith, do not throw aside the great blessings that you have been given because for many, they are growing up in households where the work of the Spirit is not experienced. And they live in a very harsh reality. It is a blessing to be in the visible church of God. And what the author to the Hebrews is saying in our passage is, don't throw it away. Don't reject the blessings that are offered to you in the visible church, but take hold of Jesus Christ in faith. 
Yes, there are blessings. There are rich blessings to being in the visible body of Christ. But if you reject Christ, these blessings will not save you. If you reject Christ, membership in the visible church will only be one more piece of evidence toward your guilt. You see, to understand this warning, you must understand the nature of the visible church. It's a mixed company. There are weeds and there are wheat. And the final separation of these two will not occur until Christ's return. Until that time, warnings must be given to the visible church. And to the sheep, they are a staff God uses to keep us in the fold. And to the wolves, a rod to drive them from our midst. And to the lost, an invitation to true salvation in Christ. So to rightly understand and apply these warning passages of Scripture, we first must understand the nature of the audience to whom it is addressed, the visible church, a mixture of true and false believers. The true believers, it's a staff to the false rod. To those who are in Christ by God's grace, these passages will drive them back into the fold, and to the false, it will expose their unbelief. The next thing that we must understand is the nature of true apostasy. Now, apostasy occurs when a member of the visible church, one who at some point publicly professed that they were a believer, rejects Christ and turns from the blessing of the church. Look at our passage again. There it describes apostasy in this way. Verse 26 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and now verse 29, the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Here I see four elements that make up apostasy. The first is continual, deliberate sinning. Those who are members of the visible church have both the witness of their conscience and the witness of God's Word to warn them of the sinfulness of sin. And while every human being has a sense of right and wrong given to them by God, we suppress that knowledge. We push it down. But those who are in the church, those who are in the visible church, have no excuse because they do have the Word of God. They have the way of holiness clearly and openly taught. And it is a sign of apostasy to know the way of holiness and to deliberately and to continually choose to live in sin. Now, we're not speaking of a Christian who is struggling with sin nor one who has a besetting sin that they battle day in and day out all of their lives. Rather, we're speaking of someone who knows an action is sinful, and they choose to pursue that sin in outward rejection of the Word of God. One who continually chooses adulterous relationships. One who chooses to live off of stealing, one who knowingly and willingly fosters disunity in the body of Christ, one whose sin 
is a deliberate way of life. Second, apostasy rejects Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The event that sparked the formation of our denomination out of the mainline Presbyterian denomination was the ordination of a minister who during his ordination exam denied that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. And the church chose to ordain this man who openly expressed the view of an apostate. Verse 29 says that an apostate has trampled underfoot the Son of God. We must see the seriousness of this verse as we read it in contrast to verse 13 of chapter 10. If you remember there, we read that Christ is waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. But in contrast, an apostate is one who denies that Jesus Christ is Lord and he tramples underfoot the Son of God. They are in open warfare against his sovereign rule and deny that Jesus Christ has the divine right to rule as the Son of God. Third, apostasy rejects the saving work of Jesus Christ. We read that they have profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified. You see, the work of Jesus Christ was to offer the sacrifice of his own blood to cleanse us of our sin. He went to the cross, not for his transgressions because he had none, but rather he went to the cross and offered himself on our behalf. He died the death that we deserved. And an apostate sees the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and rejects it. It's not that he does not understand the gospel. He understands the teaching of Scripture. He understands the Bible's teaching on the wages of sin, the free gift of God in Christ. He might have even said the sinner's prayer at one point after going through the four spiritual laws. The apostate might even have shared the gospel with others, have gone to seminary and become a pastor himself. But all of his knowledge has not led to true spiritual life. And in the end, he turns from the blood of Christ and profanes it. For intellectual knowledge and outward profession is not enough. There must be a true change of heart. We are not saved by our knowledge. We are saved by God's grace through faith in the truth of the gospel. And fourth, apostasy rejects the witness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 says, that he has outraged the spirit of grace. In Matthew 12, 32, Jesus refers to this action as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And he says, it is the one sin that will not be forgiven. Now there's been a lot of speculation concerning the nature of this offense and why it will not be forgiven. We can't go into all the ins and outs of that. But it seems at the very least we can say that this Sin consists in knowingly ascribing the work of God to the work of Satan. It is to experience the blessings of love and the power of the gospel within the visible body of Christ and then to reject that work of the Spirit and say that the love and the grace and the kindness and the exaltation and the worship of Jesus Christ is actually a curse. 
It is to say that the good of the gospel is evil and the evil of Satan is good when you know better. To use an analogy, I enjoy watching college football and my desire for Georgia to win can blind me to the truth. As those of you who watch sports know, there's times when a close play requires a review. And there have been many times, I will confess, when a receiver is clearly out of bounds, and I will insist that he was in bounds. There are many a time when a fumble clearly occurred, and I insist that the runner's knee was down. Many times when UGA are at least a foot short of the first down, and I'll declare that the spot is an outrage and they should be granted a first down. Sometimes people will worry. Am I an apostate? Have I rejected Christ and I just don't know? Apostasy isn't something that you stumble into. It is an intentional rejection of the truth. When you know what is right and true, and if you experience the blessing of the love of God, and you say it is evil and it is wrong, and I reject it. The apostate knows better. He's tasted all the blessings of the visible church, but his rejection of Christ and his allegiance to Satan leads him to a life of sin, a rejection of Christ's lordship, a profaning of Christ's sacrifice, and a rejection of the Holy Spirit's work. You see, to understand our passage, we must understand the mixed nature of the visible church. We must understand the intentional nature of apostasy. And finally, we must understand the fearful nature of God's judgment. A few aspects to point out from our passage. First, those who reject Christ have no other way of salvation. Look at verse 26. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. You see, there is no other path to salvation. There is only one way. And it is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way. There's no alternate path. Our culture doesn't like the exclusiveness of Christianity, but there is no way to take the Word of God seriously and come to any other conclusion. If you reject Jesus Christ, there's no other way to atone for sin. And if there is no atonement for sin, the only thing left is judgment for sin. Second, the judgment will destroy the enemies of God. Verse 27 says that it will be a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is the rod of God's judgment. Those who openly oppose God and His people will be consumed. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, God will rain fire upon those who rebel against the lordship of His Son, and all of His enemies will be put under His feet. And third, the judgment against apostates will be more severe than those who did not have a knowledge of the gospel. Look at verse 28 through 29. 
says anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Now, it's not for us to understand exactly how God's judgment will be more severe against apostates. Nevertheless, God will do what is right and what is just. And those who had more knowledge of his salvation and his ways will face a harsher punishment than those who did not. And fourth, judgment belongs to the Lord and not to us. Look at verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I know that it can be uncomfortable when a preacher begins to speak of God's judgment. We can become fearful for ourselves. We can become fearful for our children who have wandered away from the church. It can seem an angry and hateful thing to speak of the judgment of God. But the exact opposite is the case. For no Christian is given the right to enact vengeance. Rather, when we see that justice will be done, it frees us as Christians to forgive and to love our enemies and to pursue those who are wandering away from Christ with a spirit of love. When we see that God is the one who will judge, then we, will, we are freed from this need to be the judge of everyone else. The preaching of judgment is not meant to harm or discourage, rather it is meant as a reminder of God's rod and of His staff, a rod to God's enemies, that He will protect us, His people, and that they will be dealt with, and it is a staff to God's people to keep them in the fold. It is a comfort that our God is a good shepherd who will do what is right, and we need only trust His work. Today, we remember the lives of those church members who died in the Lord over the past year. Historically, this day has been called All Saints Day, and it's a day when we give thanks for their lives and witness, and even more that we give thanks to the Lord for His faithfulness to save and preserve them until the end, to thank the Lord as the Good Shepherd who has kept His sheep, comforting them with His rod and His staff. And to us who continue in this life, we must not overlook such passages of Scripture, nor need we fear them. Rather, we are to read them as a comfort that Christ is our good shepherd, defending us from our enemies, protecting us from our own wayward hearts. For there are times when we must traverse the valley of the shadow of death, but even here, the Word of God will guide us and will bring all of His saints safely home. Even as the Lord Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we come to you now in this time, and we pray, O oh Lord, that you would preserve and guide and direct. Lord, we pray for all of those who are gathered here in this place at this time. Lord, and that you would use your word to draw them in to the comforting hands of the Good Shepherd, knowing that you will guide us through the uncertainties of this life, and you will preserve your own until the end. We pray, O oh God, for those sheep who have wandered away from the fold. And we take heart that the Good Shepherd goes to retrieve that one, to bring them back. We pray, Lord, that you would do such a mighty work and draw all of your own back to the fold, safely bringing them through the dangers of this world into their eternal home. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.